Hey guys, Press Gallery host Emma Graney here. Another quick reminder to subscribe if you haven't already done so because we have been pushing out two episodes a week. We have, of course, this delightful panel where we do just talk rubbish about politics. Interesting rubbish uh, is what I meant to say. Um, but we do have a weekly interview as well. This week, Keith Durine sits down and has a chat with Marlon Schmidt, the Advanced Education Minister. Next week, I'll be having a chat with Derek Fildebrand, the MLA for Strathmore Brooks and leader of the Freedom Conservative Party. So do make sure you subscribe. As always, any questions, comments, concerns, shoot me an email, egraney at postmedia.com or find me on Twitter at Emma L. Graney. Enjoy this week's episode. Hello and welcome to the Press Gallery, the Edmonton Journal's politics podcast. I'm your host, Provincial Affairs reporter Emma Graney. It is Friday, October 26, 2018, and this is the Lubicon Lakes A-Leaping edition. With me today, I have my boss, Dave Breckenridge. How are you, mate? I'm good. That's good. I'm good. I'm not used to sitting on this end of the table. Yeah, anyway, we didn't You won't so be lo- able to know this from listening, but we have switched <laughs> ends and it's really disconcerting and I'm not sure that I like it, but that's cool. I'm rolling with it. I'm yes. rolling with it. Everything's fine. Change is fine. Keith Durine, <laughs> political columnist, how are you? I'm, I'm well. I'm also in a seat, so that is a little unfamiliar to me. It's uh, sort of musical chairs in the morning here on a Friday, but uh, yeah, I don't think I like it either. <laughs> and first, I'm here on the Press Gallery podcast. Elise Dolty, how are you? I'm great. Actually, it's my second time, but oh, it's my oh, first time as city wow. columnist. Of course, because... I talked about uh, the, the municipal stuff before for the election. Of course, yeah. yeah. But so I'm here and time. I'm... Uh, Welcome back. Yeah. Two weeks into City <laughs> Columbus. This is great. How's it going? <laughs> um, Good. Yeah. <laughs> I've been focusing on city issues so far because that's kind of where I have my background, but yeah. uh, branching out, looking at cannabis and health for uh, the column Ooh. for Monday. So looking at cannabis. Fun. I'm putting, I'm putting air quotes So we are going to be talking about Obviously, today, the historic Lubicon Lake First Nation Agreement, uh, which perhaps maybe ends decades of protests and legal wrangling. We're also going to talk about PACs and super PACs and the implications on the election um, and also just generally how that's all working right now. And finally, we're going to briefly look at the NDP convention this weekend and the ethics commissioner said something that she doesn't usually say to an NDP MLA. Some major shade was cast. (laughs) Yeah. Sick burn, Commissioner. Sick burn. First of all, let's talk about Lubicon Lake. Now, having only been in the province a couple of years, I'll be honest, I don't know a lot about this. Elise, you know a lot about this. I used to know a lot more about this. I haven't covered it in in a long time. And to be honest, I, like, I was going through my, 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 like I, I was up there in 2009 and I felt like I got a good sense of where the community was at then because I could yeah. talk to quite a few people. But oh man, I, I, I would love to have the chance to just go back up there and talk to people and get a really good sense on the ground of what's happening. Because when you say this is the end, like, is it? I, I, I hope this is really genuinely a big step forward for the community. They ha- can build on this. They can create a really um, healthy home for each other and, and grow and but ours, is there still a really deep divide in that community? And the former chief, is he, like, what's going on with that? We just have no sense of that yet. The agreement itself, this has obviously been debated for decades, right, Keith? Yeah, it depends on when you want to start counting time with this. Uh, you know, I first became aware of it in 1988 uh, during the Calgary Olympics. There was some uh, news coverage about a protest 
uh, and a boycott of the Olympics that the Lubicon Cree were holding at that point. 1988. 1988, and, and that was 30 Dang. years ago, obviously, this year. So, but, I mean, the land claim goes back much further to 1933 when it was first launched. And then if you want to go back even further than that, 1899 is when uh, Treaty 8 was signed and the Lubicon Cree were excluded from that. Well, they uh, were missed. They were missed, yes. They, they were, were overlooked or, well, or Because neglected. the only way to get through the province was by river, and they didn't live on the river. That's right. Now, yes. we should probably just outline exactly where Lubicon Lake is. Yeah, so it's up <laughs> It's up in the community of Little Buffalo. It's uh, about 400 kilometers northwest of Edmonton. Yeah, it's kind of just west of Fort McMurray, right? No, no. no. So, but think, like, if you, I think it really helps if you think of where Lesser Slave Lake is. Right. Then they're just, they're north of that, kind of in that, that teardrop in the center of the province where there aren't any rivers. Well, I'm sure there's some creeks. <laughs> but no major rivers as far yes. as, like, traveling. Yeah, it's closer to Peace Wait, River than, okay. than Fort McMurray. Okay. But, yes, that, that quadrant of the province. So so that's the that's the area. Um, so, yes, this has been a long time coming. Uh, that uh, missed opportunity or the, the neglect uh, from 119 years ago, uh, that obviously had a historical impact, a long historical impact that we're now just finally addressing with this with this deal. So there's a lot of things to it. There is uh, some money for housing, about 150 new housing units. There, there's going to be a building of a recreation center with an indoor ice rink. There's going to be improvements to the school. There's going to be a fire station. Uh, but the big plum is a bunch of money for economic development. And as kind of a, a landless people, the Lubicon Cree haven't had the ability to kind of control the resources on their land. There's been a lot of extraction of oil and gas and other resources on the land that they haven't benefited from. So the money will allow them to potentially form some companies, to invest uh, the the capital dollars they need in perhaps in equipment, in in organization. And in theory, this will create jobs and give them actually a a solid financial footing to go forward in the future. How that happens and how long it'll take, we'll we'll have to see. But the the makings of that are are now in place. Dave? You know, it it is one of those things. It's it's hard to see this as being a bad announcement. This is something that, that was good on the federal government or the provincial government to get done. It's, you know, 30 years after some major protests. Um, you hope that, that despite all the turmoil around this, there was lawsuits against the government. There was former Premier Jim Prentice tried to get talks restarted back in 2014 to get this done. It's been a long time coming for this First Nation and, and something that's been... Uh, outstanding in our lifetimes and even beyond that it's kind of hard to fathom just what the community may be feeling to think that wow we're finally at this point as a as a band and as a nation yeah and that was a question that came up at the press conference and Billy Julabakan, the the federally recognized chief of of the group right now, he said the planet's aligned, and and he got a lot of laughter for that remark, but there is some truth to it. It was finally a meeting of uh, two orders of government, the provincial and federal government, that decided that this was finally a priority. They finally wanted to do something about this, but also the community itself. The the community decided to elect uh, Billy Julabakan and a new council back in 2013, uh, they have uh, made this a priority themselves. And he said, look, we can sit there and lament the past, and there there have been a lot of uh, wrongs done to us, but at some point you have to move on. You have to sign the deal and look forward to the future. And it takes a lot of courage to do that, considering that the, the abuses that they've suffered. Um, but uh, they got the deal done. It sounds like they got good buy-in from the community to finally see this through. And here we are today. Now, these are just the first steps. There's This isn't going to solve all the problems overnight. 
but uh, it is it is I think quite a leap forward from where they were a few days ago. The one interesting point I saw out of this was that um, Carolyn Bennett, the the Indigenous Relations Minister, she was talking about you know as the region around them flourished, uh, the band was left without clean running water, proper sewage disposal in their homes, and this is the first step towards getting that. But it raised for me the question of well that's an issue in First Nations across the country, access to drinking water. And I had this, a cynical thought. It's like, oh, wow, uh, you had to get left out of an original treaty to finally get somewhere, some movement on that, because there are bands that are fighting for that across the country. And, you know, it's almost a hope that if they can get these amenities for the Lubicon Lake Band, that maybe you will see other First Nations get movement on some of these really pressing issues in their communities. It's a hope anyway. But this was a funny one too, because there is a water line coming out. I think it's coming out from Peace River and Mm -hmm. it comes very close to them. And this jurisdictional issue was a big deal in not bringing it just the final little way. But I think it's also really important to recognize that this is roughly half the money that they had been asking for in 1996. Wow. Um, it's the really? same size of land, but it's half the money. When I go back to the article that I had written when I toured through there in 2009. Um, so I'm like, this is one of those communities you really have to go there mm-hmm. to understand what's happening on the ground. And I'd love to talk to some more of the people that I had met back then. I had um, met with a, a counselor then who had been 22 when the, the road came through and all the drilling came through and totally disrupted their trapping economy that had really survived until those 1980s. That's why there was the big protests mm-hmm. around the Olympics. And then he was 54 when I came and still fighting for this. And just the, the, the personality and the persistence involved was, was incredible. But where are those people that I talked to then? I, I just don't know. Elise, were you surprised? I mean, you have obviously been writing about this for many years. I sound I old. No, <laughs> she's harking back to like in 2009. But um, were you surprised that they actually have reached an agreement now? Well, yeah, because I, I had I, I spent quite a bit of time covering right. Indigenous communities. And then I moved on to cover City Hall. And so I've been out of touch for this so for a long. And so then all of a sudden this this email popped up and from the provincial government. I was like, oh, wow. Um, I would have loved to be at that press conference if I could have been there and to talk to Billy Joe. Do you think that this will actually be the end of the road with these discussions? I have no idea. Keith, do you think that there's anything left to still agree on? He he was, uh, Billy Joe Lowe was sort of asked that at the press conference and his answer was at some point you just have to sign the deal and get on with it. And that was more or less what uh, what I think the attitude of, of the leadership group is now. I'm, I'm sure there will be other issues that come up. Uh, this is takes care of a lot of the immediate issues, but I think the economic development piece is going to be an ongoing issue. Uh, I think there's going to be um, interest from third parties on accessing that land. The uh, the band will now have more control and more say over uh, who goes on the land. But, you know, how they actually develop, whether they'll need further assistance to do that, I mean, we'll have to see. And that's a question that won't be answered for probably several years. More years. More years. <laughs> <laughs> okay, let's move on to another subject that has been rearing its head up this week in Alberta politics. The wonderful world of PACs, political action committees, which is not what they're called here. Technically, they're called third-party advertisers. Which is so boring. It's so boring. It's so Alberta. I know. It's just like, come on, guys, let's go with PACs. Oh, it's PACs. It's just like... Well, oh, the parties are word. using PACs. The the parties in their rhetoric are all using PACs. Yeah, and that's what they're called in the United States, so... Yeah, and we, you know, we, as we love to look south of the border for our political inspirations, don't we? We do. Mm-hmm. So, this week, we had... Um, 
a letter come out from the Motor Dealers Association to all of its members basically saying, hey, what, what, we met with Jason Kenney um, and under a UCP government, we'll get all of this cool stuff. So we all have to pitch in and give them money um, to a pack, well, this specific pack, and everyone sent a check for $5,000. Let's raise the roof. Let's try for a million bucks. It was um, quite the letter. Who wants to start off on this? I'll jump in. I mean, I'm of two minds on PACs, just like I'm kind of of two minds on donations to political parties. We have a system wherein we give groups the opportunity to exercise their right to speech, um, whether they be unions or corporations or individuals, and by way of donating money to a group, of like-minded people or groups, and they can advertise, they can put their political messages out there. It's a very socialist concept, isn't yeah. it? Everyone pull your money and it'll be for the better good. Yeah. And <laughs> I wonder if they looked at it that way. So <laughs> that the, the letter from the Motor Dealers Association, um, they were trying to get people to donate to something called Shaping Alberta's Future, which has had a blitz of radio ads talking about how the NDP government is ruining Alberta, basically. I, P- punishing I, Alberta's families. Yes. Punishing, punishing a, Alberta's families. You know, I, I no one wants to see ruining Alberta fa- is a ruin, nutshell. Ruining Alberta. <laughs> and so these ads have been everywhere. And people on the left and NDP supporters and even the NDP government the pr- up to the premier have all said, this is horrible. We don't want big muddied interests uh, running our politics, it shouldn't be the people with the deepest pockets who have the biggest say in our democratic process, and these are all very high-minded ideals. However, and this is where I get frustrated. Dave has actually got his hands I have my hands are, My hands are going. After the NDP was elected, they made what I felt at the time was a good move. It was something that was done at the federal level. They banned corporate and union donations to political parties. They wanted it to be about individuals giving money great they capped the donation limit on individuals awesome they didn't do anything about PACs the NDP who has been criticizing the use of a conservative PAC to spread all this this whole message about how the NDP is awful the NDP didn't do anything about it when they made changes to the laws and I'm frustrated that there's this and it's on the UCP side as well there's this back and forth hypocrisy of uh, all of these parties saying how bad PACs are there was a fundraising letter that went out from the UCP talking about all these uh union backed NDP friendly PACs you know give us money to the give money to the UCP so we can combat these union backed NDP friendly PACs well are they good or are they bad are PACs a good thing or are they a bad thing the parties need to make up their mind on that. And that's what I'm getting. I'm extremely frustrated with the messaging this week from both sides of the debate. Would it have been more transparent if they didn't change things at all? Yes, it would have been more transparent <laughs> had they not. I mean, it's at least the process here is transparent, whereby registered third parties have to disclose who's giving the money. So you can see the uh, who's given money to shaping Alberta's future. And it's, you know, car dealers, other businesses, Stanley Milner, whose name is on the library and now a street in northwest Edmonton. He gave like 25 grand to uh, shaping Alberta's future. On the flip side, you look at, you know, Alberta Federation of Labor, they're moneyed up thanks to donations from all sorts of public sector unions. So it is a transparent process, but at least you're right. Had they not made any changes, it would have been very transparent because you know who's giving money to these parties. So, you know, but that's uh, my frustration this week has been about just the 
The mind-numbing hypocrisy yeah. of it all. Hey, Dave. Yes. It's, it <laughs> fires me up. I get hand-talky <laughs> when... Uh, no, and I think I think you're right about that. And, I mean, it's clearly the parties are saying, oh, we don't really like PACs, but we're not prepared to really do anything about it now, so we're just going to accept the bad rules that we have and take advantage of them as much as possible. Um, the concern, Such a cynical I view. know. That does seem to be what it is, though, right? <laughs> and, and, I mean, the NDP certainly has theirs. The Alberta Federal Federation of Labor and the Health Science uh, Association of Alberta both have um, advertising out right now that's a little more subtle than the, the Shaping Alberta's Future uh, ads that are very clearly an attack on the NDP. Nonetheless, um, everybody's getting their message out, and we should probably expect to see more of it uh, in the in the months ahead, although the, the spending limits uh, start to come into effect uh, after December 1st. Yeah. So the problem, though, with the letter from the Motor Dealers Association of Alberta, at least in the NDP's viewpoint, it, there's a couple of things. What, it, what they're alleging is that Jason Kenney has essentially made his platform for sale, that if you give us money uh, or if you give the PAC money, we will promise these various things. And it was things like um, we're going to roll back the WCB changes and occupy health and safety changes and all consumer protections as well. We're going to change those. That's right. Make some changes to the the auto regulator in the province whose name escapes me right now, as well as uh, we're going to ban right-hand drive Asian vehicles. Huge problem in Alberta. Mm. Right, right. Exactly. So, <laughs> well, the who knows? I, I do just I, out of control. Yes. Anyway, <laughs> anyway, so I mean that that is what the NDP is alleging in that case. The other part of it is they are alleging too close a collaboration between the PAC, the dealers, and and the UCP, and that that is illegal under Alberta law. Parties cannot work directly with the PAC; otherwise, it's just a direct. Um, getting around of, of uh, financing limits that the parties have in place. So there's, you know, what the uh, what the investigation will decide, the elections commissioner will find out. Um, right now, the Motor Dealers Association is alleging that that letter does not accurately reflect what actually happened in a meeting between Jason Kenney and the Motor Dealers Association. But they wrote the letter. But they wrote the letter. <laughs> <laughs> so the letter on its face does not look great. So we'll see. Uh, and, and Jason Kenney has also denied that the letter is accurate. But um, it's out there now and, and it, it doesn't look good. And his response has just been to, to say, well, the NDP has packs out too. And, you know, so we have to fight back somehow is essentially what he said. What's that thing with Asian vehicles? I, I got tagged on Facebook can- <laughs> and I could not figure that out. In Alberta, I don't know what it's like across the country, but you can import uh, foreign made right hand drive vehicles. That would um, mean a car in Australia too. Well, yeah, you're welcome. Canada. So, I mean, for the most part, I've seen it. They're they're Japanese made. I've I've seen them. They're Japanese yeah. made uh, right hand drive vehicles. Some people use them for racing. Some of them are collectors. I don't know why the Motor Dealers Association wants them banned, other than they want people to buy their cars locally. Whichever. Well, <laughs> I, I did talk to the, the head of the Motor Dealers Association, uh, uh, Dennis Ducharme, who is a former Tory MLA from the, the Klein years. And he basically said there a lot of these vehicles are old and they're polluters. And so they just, for the good of the air and the good of, huh. of the province, they, they want them banned. Uh, I, I, I don't know enough about it to say whether that's the real reason or not. But, you know, that, that was the stated reason he gave me. Hmm. So would this mean more uh, like air quality bans on any older vehicle? Because that would 
Very nice. No, he did not go that far. He did not. I did not ask him that, but no, he did not volunteer that. I'm um, one of the things that's worth pointing out here too. Uh, I've asked Christina Gray, the Labor Minister, who is also the minister responsible for democratic renewal or democratic change or some long bloody title like that. And I said to her, "Are you? But are you going to bring in anything this for? Because it's all well and good. You keep talking about how much you hate PACs, but you've not done anything to change it." And their argument this whole time has been, yeah, but we're caught between um, legislating PACs and controlling their activities and free speech because the federal government, uh, sorry, the federal government, the Supreme Court has said, no, people have the right to advertise. You can't say you can't advertise because it does impact free speech. So that's where the NDP, oh, that's where Christina Gray says she came at this from, was trying to kind of walk that tightrope, as mm-hmm. it were. But no, she's not planning on bringing in any more changes during the fall session, which will probably be the only session that I've been here in Alberta in which they haven't brought in some change to their uh, election finance laws. Yeah, it, it, is a, it is a difficult issue because you, I, I don't think you can ban PACs outright. And to even kind of limit their fundraising or limit their spending, I think that also gets into uh, territory where you could say that it is an infringement on, on, on freedom of speech. They've already limited it some in some ways. Uh, to go further, I think, is, is going to be difficult. So I, my, my belief is this is going to have to be Albertans saying, we don't like this, that they're going to have to show PACs and parties that they don't like this kind of advertising mm-hmm. and, and actually, um, ch- you know, change change the landscape with their votes. I think that's uh, I think that's the only real solution here. Don't they put a limit on what parties can spend, though? They yeah. do. Yeah. So I, that's what I don't understand is that arguably the parties are exercising their right to free political speech so we can cap their spending. But well, like, why not just bring the caps down for everybody? Or maybe they should just, like, what about just taking away that? Maybe it was a misstep to control, to make those. Maybe they should have seen that this first step would have had unintended consequences and take a look at going back. Possibly. But, I mean, third-party advertisers have been around for a while. I'm I'm sure that you some of you may remember the, I believe it was the 2008 uh, provincial election campaign, the horrible, horrible uh, no plan uh, ads, the anti-Stelmac no plan ads that I can't remember. I think who, it was the Alberta who, Federation of Labor. Yeah. yeah, they were terrible ads. Yeah, uh, <laughs> from an ad from a political no, and advertising they, and they, standpoint, and they, and they backfired. They completely yeah. backfired. Yeah, Stelmac crushed the opposition in in that election. Um, but there, it's not a new thing. And even before you had bans on who could donate to political parties, you had these third party advertisers who were out there trying to get their message out in an election. Which I think, I don't think it's a bad thing to have groups who who say. We want to lobby for our cause. I mean, on you, and they come from the left or the right. You could have business groups that say, like, no, we want to have a better tax regime in the province. Um, or you have the teachers association who run ads about class sizes. Those are, I think, important messages to get out that, you know, may try and cut through some of the noise and the rhetoric that the political parties have. But I don't, I, again, I go back to my original point. I don't like the government talking about. It's bad that money interests are getting moneyed interests are involved in the political process when they're allowing it and they they can benefit from it as well. And it's only paid advertising too. It's nothing on Facebook or Twitter or anything like that, which is of course where a lot of these people do promote their messages, like those little, you know, your memes or your Facebook videos or the, you know, the black and white ones, kind of like uh, those infomercials where the grey and white means bad because everything breaks. That's kind of how political <laughs> right. ads are too. 
Yeah, I, I just think it is going to be very difficult to, to really cap the spending. Like right now, after December 1st, each pack is limited to $150,000 in spending yeah. and then another 150 in the actual election period. But again, that's only traditional advertising. It's only traditional advertising and it's only per pack. So in theory, if you got seven, eight, ten packs all offering a similar message, they each get $150,000. Yeah. And so I'm not sure you're really limiting the spending in that way. That is a loophole, I think, parties or PACs or, you know, groups of interested people can exploit in the law. But I, again, I'm not sure how easily you legislate around that. And we'll get to see more as the election gets closer. Hooray! I want to switch gears over to, very briefly, uh, the Ethics Commissioner this week sent a letter. Yeah, I guess she did. She finished up her report looking into uh, Jason Kenney, UCP leader, and his UCP colleague, Prasad Panda, who is um, an MLA in Calgary, they went to India on a trip recently along with UCP MLA for Innisfail Sylvan Lake, Devon Dreeshan. The NDP had registered a complaint about it. That was uh, Heather Sweet. She sent a letter to the Ethics Commissioner saying, Oi, look at this. This is terrible. They took private flights and they're misrepresenting themselves and the whole thing stinks to high heaven. I don't like it. That was obviously a paraphrase. That is not what she wrote in her letter to the Ethics Commissioner. Ethics Commissioner did take a look into it and uh, turn around this week and said, it's all fine. No problem. Yeah, another paraphrase there. Uh, my <laughs> paraphrase would be more like, I have to investigate <sighs> this? Really? Okay. Her that was at the end was, oh, are you going to read what she well, said? Well, yeah, no, it, it's pretty good. You don't often see this from a, from a public official, like not. an no, independent public official. In the future, it would be appreciated if those requesting an investigation did not post the request to social media before I have the courtesy of receiving the request. As well, given that Alberta is having a general election within the next year, I want to make it clear that I do not want members filing complaints against other members for the purpose of scoring political points. Ouch. <laughs> that was, uh, that's a message right there to Heather Sweet and the NDP. Um, because Jason Kenney and Prasad Pandit and Devin Dreeshan apparently cleared this with the Ethics Commission before they went. Yep. Uh, and were The private flights, anyway. And, uh, the private flights. And, I, and she says they were very careful not to misrepresent themselves. That didn't stop from people in India misrepresenting who they were uh, and and some of them suggesting that they were actually agents of the crown which was not the case but she found no evidence that that Kenny and company did that deliberately um, so yeah uh, anyway this one the, I, I honestly thought that trip that Kenny took was a little dodgy I thought it was probably not appropriate for him to go when he's not an agent of the crown and I, I think Part of the reason for going may have been to kind of stick a fork in the NDP and 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 mess around <laughs> with them a bit, and it sure worked. Cynical, uh, Keith. Yeah, <laughs> I think that may have been, or maybe have been, just a bonus of the trip. But uh, regardless, uh, there was nothing ethically wrong, according to the ethics commissioner, and she was um, mad. She even had to look into it. I so. feel like it, it, she felt kind of like my mum sometimes when I would, you know, do stupid stuff as a teenager. Like, you know what, Emma? I'm not mad. I'm just really disappointed. Yeah. And I'd like it if you just thought about your actions a little more, <laughs> you know? Is that just me? Just me and my mum? Yeah. <laughs> I didn't do anything to disappoint my parents ever. No. <laughs> and just very, very briefly now, the NDP convention is this weekend, starts today, um, or at least I've got a whole bunch of caucus meetings on today. Uh, they've just sent out their resolutions. There are a ton of them, as you might imagine, um, 95, I think, is I saw on the list. Maybe 95. Many, yeah. Many, numerous. 
Um, are we expecting anything big to come out of this? I can't see any. Like you're a few months before an election, the the government has been pretty consistent in their messaging on on what they had hoped to accomplish in their term. They've done a lot of things that they said they were going to do. Um, I can't see anything like earth shattering coming out of their pre-election convention, other than it's a chance to whip up uh, their base into a frenzy, well, which yeah. they need to do because yeah. they are well behind in the polls. Yeah. So. Well, yeah, and I mean, before the UCP convention, um, obviously that was an unknown quantity. It was it was a new party. Mm-hmm. Every all the policies were going to be new. It, it wasn't just like carrying on in the same way that it has been because the whole thing was new. I think it will be a different vibe to the UCP. Yeah, I mean, also. I know what I'm looking for is just some inkling of what the strategy is going to be for the next election because. You know, the carbon tax, not so popular in a lot of parts of the of Alberta uh, economy uh, has been uneven in, in Calgary in particular. Uh, there are they, there's no pipeline on, in the foreseeable future. So what are they what message are they going to give to Albertans that they they should be reelected? I, that's what I'm interested to see at this convention. I don't know if they'll reveal that at this point, but that to me is the big question over the next six months for I- this party. I think you've seen it already, and it's the UCP are bad. Yes. Just yeah. generally, just, yeah. you know, they don't care about the environment. They don't care about working families. They don't care about LGBTQ issues. They don't care about women. Um, I don't know. Just go on Twitter on the AB Ledge feed for a, for like a half hour. Don't I think do you that, everyone. Preserve <laughs> your mental health. I, do I not think, do that. I think that's the message that you're going to continue to get from the NDP. I could maybe I could be wrong, and uh, you know I'll be I'll be watching the coverage over the weekend with uh, a lot of interest. But I think that's what you're going to see. I'll be there tweeting up a storm because that's how I like to spend my weekends. Apparently, is that political <laughs> if only there, if only there was weekend. one every weekend. Yeah. Oh yeah, if only there hadn't been two weekends in a row. <laughs> yeah, which I got to hang out with partisans the best. Let's move over to our regular segment, Good Stuff from the Gallery, in which we recommend stuff we have read or seen or listened to lately that we think you might also enjoy, dear listeners. Elise, do you Me want to first. start us off? Yeah. Um, sure. I was a little unprepared, but I went to Facebook because I remembered something I really liked reading. Mm-hmm. Um, the first column I wrote was on um, how it's the way that we're handling homelessness right now is just not working, forcing people to keep moving on when they set up a tent and they've got nowhere to go and it's like it's driving people into the back and like nooks and crannies of our river valley, which is not good for anyone, not good for them, not good for communities, not good for people using the river valley. In Calgary, there's a new project to use tiny homes for a little village specifically for homeless veterans. Um, fascinated by that idea. There's some really interesting articles online right now about what that could look like. I'm really hoping to go down for a field trip in the spring once this is set up. I just think there are so many creative alternatives that we haven't been exploring yet. And I'd love to see after that first column that I wrote about the um, about how we could do homelessness differently, I got do homelessness. That's like really poor way how of saying it. How we can approach homelessness uh, differently. That's a good way of approaching it. Um, I got so many emails about from people who have great ideas. I'm there's so much we could do here. Curious to see how it goes. There's a lot of articles on there, so I'll... Head over to the website and I will post links to some good articles about how to approach homelessness. Nice one. Keith Drine, what do you have for us, mate? Yeah, I have an article in Bloomberg Business uh, written by Matthew Campbell. It's called The Unsolved Murder of an Unusual Billionaire. Ooh. And this is a kind of an update, uh, a long read about the murder in Toronto last year or the year before, I forget, uh, of uh, Barry and Honey Sherman, who is the the uh, Apotex uh, founder and president uh, and a billionaire. And uh, it was a very unusual murder at the time. This is a good wrap up of um, 
discussing some of the details of the case, some of the players involved in the investigation, and just the difficulties that the police are facing right now uh, in trying to solve it. It is one of the more bizarre murder cases that I, I've seen in my lifetime. And this is, this is a very good wrap-up and offers some new details on the case as well. It's just a good read. Intriguing. I'm going to recommend a piece from Australia, as I like to do sometimes. It is from ABC News Australia. It's called Deadly Queens. Um, it is fantastic. It's a really awesome look at Indigenous drag queens. And there's actually, um, they're fabulous double minorities. And for Australia's growing community of Indigenous drag queens, a small talent quest offers a chance to strut into visibility. So there's actually, it's called um, Miss First Nation, and it's a week-long, um, basically a drag contestant, like a, a drag race for a drag race. I watch too much RuPaul. <laughs> <laughs> it's basically a talent quest for Indigenous drag queens. Wow. And they got um, a bunch of them to come into the Melbourne ABC studios and put themselves into drag and kind of talk about how it transformed their lives, what it means for them and how growing up so many of them, not only are they Indigenous, which is a minority, but then they were also drag queens, which is just this, you know, really, really minority minority. So it's the most beautiful stories in there about their personal um, journey into acceptance of themselves and how they're fitting in with this uh, with this community. Dave. All right, I have a, I have a couple things to recommend. They're both linked, and and I hope they haven't been mentioned before uh, on the press gallery. The first one is a new podcast uh, called Sold in America. It's hosted by journalist uh, Noor Tagori. Um, she is doing uh, a series that dives into America's unseen sex trade, covering issues from human trafficking to prostitution. Uh, it's a couple episodes in now, and she's looked at. Uh, sex trafficking. She's looked at a John school in Seattle. Um, it's a really fascinating uh, look so far. It, uh, you know, it's an American issue, but it's it's universal as well. And related to that, but not uh, linked to it, is a New York Times piece from a couple of weeks ago called "The Case of Jane Doe Ponytail." It's a beautifully written, heartbreaking story about a sex worker uh, in Queens who. Um, they looked into her life after she fell four stories to her death from uh, an apartment where she was working um, uh, as it was being raided. Uh, and it looked at how she wound up uh, coming from China to the United States and ended up working in the sex trade there. It's a really, it's, the writing is outstanding, but it is a very sad story. Yep. Guys, thank you so much for joining me, Dave, Keith, and Elise. And another quick reminder to subscribe because we do have our second episode each week now, the Press Gallery interview. This week's looks talks to Marlon Schmidt, right, Keith? I was, uh, me and Marlon, it was good. It was good times. And next week, I'll be talking to Derek Fildebrand. So tune wow. in for that. Make sure you subscribe and then you get all of the latest episodes right to your device. We'll be back here this time again next week for more Roberta Political Fun on the Press Gallery.